Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, why you may soon see autonomous vehicles on valley freeways. And more people are being held in immigration detention centers across the country. What does that look like in our state? But first, Governor Katie Hobbs on Friday released her budget proposal for the upcoming fiscal year starting on July 1st. The roughly $16 billion plan aims to close a shortfall in part by putting new restrictions on the state's universal school voucher program and taking back some of the money that was doled out last year for specific projects. The proposal was described as an, quote, unserious mess by the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee. With me now to talk more about what's in the governor's plan, as well as what else to look out for this week at the state capitol, is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Good morning, Howie. Good morning. Just thanking my stars that I'm in Arizona and not in Iowa. Yeah, a little warmer here. So uh, the governor unveiled her budget. The Republicans, perhaps predictably, said they were not huge fans of it. Um how like this is often seen as sort of a starting point. Is there a point at which these two sides can start to maybe work together based on this? Well, I don't think they have a choice. You know, the Arizona Constitution says that we have to have a balanced budget. We're running anywhere from 420 million or more in the red for this current fiscal year, which needs to be resolved by June 30th. And then next year, uh, when you add in the current budget, you were either 800 million or 1.7 billion in the hole. And so something's going to have to happen. No question about that. Now, what does it look like and how ugly does that get? Uh, You know, we've got a couple of months to figure that out. Yeah. Well, so Governor Hobbs uh, is looking to put, and she had mentioned this earlier before her budget came out, put in some new restrictions on the universal ESA, the school voucher program, including basically uh, requiring anybody who's going to get the voucher to have spent first 100 days in public schools. Now, it seems probably unlikely that parents who have kids in private schools are going to pull their kids out for 100 days and then put them back in to get the voucher. So is this just a way to reduce the number of people who are taking these ESAs? Exactly. It's a poison pill. And even the governor's office admitted that. They're not expecting any of the folks who are in the new universal voucher program, kids who have already been in private schools all their lives to suddenly say, well, we're going to spend you know, 100 days in the Madison School District or something like that. They figure, you know, mommy and daddy were paying for it before. They'll pay for it again in terms of their private and parochial school tuition. So is it a serious proposal? Well, it's a way of getting, you know, money that she needs, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, $700 million, uh, you know, depending on whose numbers you you look at. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the, the fact is that the lawmakers, as you point out at the top of the, the, the show here, it, it's a non-starter. You know, there may be something that they're willing to do to 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 kind of mitigate the cost of this. But th- this is one of those uh, items of, of just absolute pure belief that children are entitled to choice. And that means the state paying for them. Now, part of the problem, as we've talked about before, is that vouchers cost more than public schools. You know, when, when you're just talking state dollars, in fact, there's about seven hundred dollars a child more per year than they're paying to public schools. Uh, is that fair? 
well, you know, the, the proponents would say, well, but the voucher schools, the, the private schools don't get federal aid. They don't have the ability to borrow money for bonding, things like that. And so therefore, somehow it's fair. Uh, this is going to be a philosophical argument, you know, for years to come, no matter how they resolve this year's problem. Right. So, Howie, the budget probably not going to be in the news a ton until a little bit later in the session once the the sides start getting serious. But something else that is going to be in the news this week, the Arizona Commerce Authority. We heard uh, from Jake Hoffman, who is interested in doing away with this. And this week might be the first step in, in seeing what that agency's future is. Exactly. Commerce Authority has been around now going back to Governor Brewer, and the idea was to take the old Commerce Department and partner with private industry and then come up with plans to bring businesses to Arizona. Some of that is just publicizing the state. Uh, Some of that is publicizing the state through things that got a lot of attention from the Auditor General, like a little whining and dining and partying with folks during the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. Uh, That got Jake Hoffman's attention. Some of it, though, are plans that the legislature has approved. For example, if you're a company and you create so many jobs at a specific salary, you're entitled to a certain tax break. All that is administered through the Commerce Authority. But what Jake Hoffman is proposing to do is take an axe, if you will, rather than a scalpel to the problem, get rid of the authority. Well, that gets rid of all the incentives. That gets rid of you know the solar program. That gets rid of so many other programs that are just under that. There is, as you point out, a hearing this week, what they call a sunset hearing to determine should it have additional life. The Commerce Authority will be extended. I don't see any way that doesn't happen. The question is, do they do it for just two years to kind of keep them on a short leash and say, we're watching you? Or do they do it for four years, six or eight years, which is much more common? Right. But there's a lot of philosophical disagreement there. And how we also uh, this week, uh, something coming up that's almost kind of become an annual tradition at the Capitol, an effort to basically do away with photo enforcement, photo radar throughout the state. Well, this, this is one of those articles of faith among some folks. Now, remember, we do not have photo radar, photo enforcement in terms of speeding on state highways. Jan Brewer got rid of that years and years ago. So what we're left with are two things. Number one, which is the speed cameras, mainly in places like Paradise Valley. And I'm sure the Paradise Valley police chief will come down to the Capitol and say people will die if we can't have our photo radar trucks. What we also have, which is a little trickier, is the issue of red light cameras. This state has a particular problem with motorists, whether it's just too much sunshine or too much happiness for all I know. They're just running red lights. And there are a lot of people who, while they don't support photo radar because they say that's not fair, because, you know, maybe they're traveling at the right speed for the conditions. Red light, red light cameras are are important because Mm -hmm. people who run red lights kill people. So we'll have the annual debate. And somehow I have a feeling that photo radar will remain around for another couple of years. All right. That is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Howie, as always, thank you. And stay warm. Waymo says it'll start testing its autonomous vehicles on Valley Freeways. Drivers around the Phoenix metro area have seen the driverless cars on surface streets for a while now. But the company says its employees will be able to get on freeways soon, first during non-rush hour times, but eventually working up to service 24 hours a day. With me to talk more about this is Andrew Hawkins, transportation editor at The Verge. Andrew, good morning. 
Good morning. How significant is this for Waymo that it'll start testing on Valley freeways and eventually the company hopes be able to incorporate freeways into their routes? Yeah, it's it's certainly a milestone. I think it service uh, in Phoenix a lot more convenient for its customers. Uh, you know, before when uh, the company was just sticking to surface roads and avoiding highways, a trip uh, could take, you know, upwards 50, 60 minutes. And now they're saying that the same trip will take around tw- uh, 25 minutes or so, uh, roughly half the time it did if they just stuck to surface roads. So I think it's a it's a big win for for customers when they eventually get a chance to, to try it out. And it's a it's a win for the company because uh, obviously their their goal is to become uh, more convenient, and, uh, uh, more utility to their customers. Uh, but while, you know, approaching things safely and conservatively as, as they do in order to uh, avoid rushing things too much. What do you see and what do folks in the industry see as some of the biggest challenges to get these vehicles driving safely on freeways, which, as we know, is a different driving environment than surface roads? Yeah, it's actually uh, it's a great question because, you know, I think somewhat ironically, you would think that a, a driverless car would be able to operate better on a on a highway than it would on a on a residential street because there's just a lot less uh, complication. It's uh, you know, there's not intersections, there aren't uh, traffic signals, there aren't pedestrians and cyclists and all of these things that tend to uh, come up uh, as uh, complications on the uh, in the environment around self-driving cars. Uh, but at the same time, I think what Waymo wanted to demonstrate was that it could handle these more complicated environments, such as residential roads and surface streets, uh, before it tackled highways. I think as a way to sort of prove to people that its technology was able to handle these complex environments before it tried to tackle less complex environments. Now, that said, that's not to say that highways aren't complex. There is obviously a lot of risk involved in driving on highways, especially when you start to consider the speeds that you are required to travel in yeah. order to uh, keep up with traffic. And I think what Waymo is trying to say is, yes, it, there are risks involved, but we wanted to demonstrate that we can handle these more complex environments first. Uh, but, you know, it won't be an entirely risk-free environment. You know, I think a lot of the crashes that Waymo vehicles do get involved in tend to be rear-ending crashes, human drivers crashing into the backs of Waymo vehicles, because the Waymo cars tend to drive a lot more conservatively than human drivers do. Uh, and I think at, the, at a highway, that becomes a little bit more of a risk, because when you're crashing into someone, and uh, if it's a rear-end crash, uh, that can be, uh, uh, at, at highway speeds, involve injuries and possible fatalities. So I think Waymo is going to have to be careful as it uh, uh expands its service area to include highways. Well, and I'm, I'm also curious, you mentioned speed. And, you know, for a lot of folks on, on freeways, especially if they're not super crowded, you know, you kind of drive at the speed of the flow of the traffic around you, which, you know, let's be honest, is not always 55 or 65 miles an hour, depending on what the speed limit actually is. So how does Waymo try to adapt to that keeping in mind that they tend to stick to the speed limit and, as you say, drive more conservatively than a lot of humans do? Well, I think hopefully, I think for folks that drive do drive on highways, maybe the Waymo vehicles will tend to stick to the right lane, but we'll we'll have to see yeah. how that actually unfolds. But yeah, it's it's definitely going to be something that Waymo is going to have to take into consideration because if there's any perception um, that they're uh, going sort of beyond what the law allows, then I think that they're going to open themselves up to criticism. Uh, you know, I think that there's, uh, you know, driverless cars are held to a different standard than human driven vehicles, I think is uh, something that we're learning as this uh, experiment plays out in public. And I think that Waymo needs to be able to needs to prove its safety 
to the public because there's still a lot of skepticism around self-driving cars. And I think we've seen polls and surveys uh, say that people are are still somewhat trepidatious when it comes to the technology, that they need to prove beyond, beyond the shadow of a doubt that they're safer. Uh, but that said, if they can't seem to operate in an organic fashion in a way that is commensurate with the way the drivers operate too, then they'll sort of uh, uh, you know put themselves uh, a bit on the outside. And I think that that could be also open themselves up to criticism. They're, they drive too slowly, or that you know maybe they're uh, holding up traffic or, or or other things that you start to see some of the same similar criticisms leveled at them in, in some of the urban environments which they operate. So th- there's a lot of risks. There's a lot of uh, um, I think concerns about how this is going to unfold, but I think. Uh, uh, Waymo has a track record of operating safely. They've released a lot of data in the, in the past few years to show how uh, their vehicles uh, are involved in f- way fewer crashes than human-driven vehicles and, in fact, avoid crashes completely. Um, so I think that there is a, um, uh, a lot of hope that perhaps they can bring that same sort of standard of safety to highways as they do to um, uh, uh, residential streets. Yeah. In terms of the industry overall, how big of a deal is it that Waymo is is looking to expand to freeways? And I'm wondering, uh, let's say that, that it, is, it is successful, like how big of a deal could that be for the industry moving forward and expanding, you know, either Waymo or other companies expanding to other markets as well? Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a it's a huge deal because I think ultimately, you know, beyond the questions surrounding the technology and does it work and does it not work and will people want to use it? There's a question of of market, uh, uh, you know, what the market will dictate and what what uh, Waymo needs to demonstrate in order to remain a competitive and also uh, a revenue generating uh, project. You know, right now they're uh, propped up by the the largesse of their of their parent company, which is Alphabet, which owns Google. Uh, it, you know, because it's not a, a company that uh, is really. Uh, in the business of of making money or, or even generating a profit at this time. Mm. Uh, and sure, yes, they do have a commercial service and they do make some money, but it's not anywhere close to what they need in order to uh, begin to, to break even. Uh, so I think in order for it to be a, a, a profitable service for something that's going to work as a business in the future and not just be some sort of wacky uh, science experiment that we've all been sort of watching play out, uh, they're going to need to be something that's a lot more convenient and useful to people. And right now, you know, the standard that, that a lot of people hold them to is, you know, it, it's not Uber or Lyft, you know, an Uber or Lyft vehicle can take you anywhere you need to go. They have a human driver, so there's no limitations. There's no geographic service area, whatnot. You, right. you want to, uh, you know, drive all day and all night, you can. Uh, but with a Waymo vehicle, there's all these restrictions. And I think for the average consumer, they're not really thinking about restrictions. Um, you know, there's always going to be enthusiasts, people who want to use it because it's new and futuristic and it's interesting to drive in a vehicle without anyone in the front seat. Uh, but beyond those enthusiasts, that's not enough to really keep and prop up a commercial service. And I think that Waymo is obviously thinking about that next phase um, as it starts to open up uh, these new roads and these new uh, these new uh, uh, geographic areas for itself. You know, how is it going to stay in business in the future? Sure. Interesting. All right. That is Andrew Hawkins, transportation editor at The Verge. Andrew, thanks as always. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up from novels tackling addiction to nonfiction works examining historical literature, 2024 is shaping up to be a big year for books. 
So I think one thing I'm noticing, at least in the first few months of 2024, is that um, there's a lot of variety of things. There's a lot of variety both in fiction and in nonfiction, popular fiction, literary fiction. It's uh, uh, it's very global and very all over the place. We'll also hear about what Arizona is contributing to the 2024 release schedule. But first, so much of the conversation around immigration right now centers on our southern border, where record numbers of people are arriving, hoping to seek asylum in the U.S. from countries all over the world. At the same time, the number of people in ICE detention nationwide is growing. It reached its highest point since 2020, late last year. So what does detention look like in Arizona? And is it connected to the migrant crisis on our border? To find out, I got a hold of one of the people who works directly in the detention centers in our state. Shannon Johnson, a managing attorney with the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project. There are three facilities in Arizona that are ICE detention centers. There are two in Florence, the Florence Correctional Center and the Florence Detention Center. And we have another in Eloy, Arizona called the Eloy Detention Center. And there's roughly around 2,000 people currently detained between these three facilities today in Arizona currently. Okay, 2,000 people. Are these federally run, privately run, contracted out like many of our state prisons are? Two of the facilities are owned by CoreCivic, which is a private uh, detention incarceration company. And the third facility, the Florence Detention Center, is run by ICE or the government. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about how people end up in immigration detention and where this system lies sort of in the legal landscape. Like we hear so much right now about people seeking asylum, arriving at the U.S. border, presenting themselves to Border Patrol saying, I would like to seek asylum in this country. And then they'll sort of release to their families or relatives and, and waiting for a court date after that. That's a different population than who ends up in detention. How do these folks end up in detention and not sort of in that other boat? Broadly, there are two ways uh, in where we see people ending up in the Arizona immigration detention system. The first can still be newly arrived asylum seekers, um, mainly single adults who might enter between a port of entry, single adults who might not have an advanced appointment to present, or anyone that might be coming with a past criminal or immigration history. But we also have community members who are internally brought to ICE detention centers. So this can be from minor or nonviolent arrests or criminal convictions, Hmm. Um, people that go to their probation check-in and they might have ICE waiting for them. They could be transferred directly from criminal custody to the ICE detention center. So there are community members and people from the local community Mm -hmm. who also end up in immigration detention in Arizona. And it runs sort of as a parallel legal system, right? Like this is not the criminal justice system in the same way we think of the courts, right? Correct. This is a separate proceeding. Um, When people are detained in our immigration system here in Arizona, oftentimes they have a concurrent removal or deportation case. Mm. Most of these cases will be held in courts that are actually inside of the detention centers. Mm. There's the Eloy Immigration Court and the Florence Immigration Court. So while someone's detained, they'll also be fighting an immigration case, generally, um, in, in most cases, inside of one of those two courts. How long are folks often held in detention? Is that sort of, uh, I know, one of the narratives in terms of the the criticisms of immigration detention is that they can be there for a long time and, and it can take a long time for these proceedings to play out. Absolutely. The current immigration detention population can... Um, 
depending on where they're at in their case and their procedural posture. We've seen shorter uh, times in detention, depending on if someone has the option to request release from immigration authorities or an immigration judge. We've also seen clients and people detained for years, depending on uh, whether they're going to fight an adverse decision in their removal or deportation case. That might take different layers and levels of um, appellate advocacy and uh, other types of immigration court review. So that can lead to years in detention. The mechanisms to request release from a judge are now more limited than we have seen in the past several years. So that can lead to lengthier wait times in detention to receive a decision from the judge, although there is the impetus to move forward more quickly in those removal cases. That's interesting. So so it sounds like there have been some policy changes in terms of the legal remedies you representing a client in detention can take to try to get them out? Correct. There have been a a number of cases that have limited um, an asylum seeker and other individuals' ability to challenge their detention by requesting a bond from a judge. So that's been a mechanism that's been whittled away at in recent years. For example, someone that might have entered between ports of entry and then have what we call a credible fear interview, Mm -hmm. that individual, based on the existing law, could be um, and is likely foreclosed from requesting release from a judge. Hmm. Um, so that can increase the numbers of people in detention or the length of time that people spend in detention without that additional ability to request release from a judge. Hmm. So in the context that we're looking at now, where we're seeing this surge of people arriving at the southern border requesting asylum, usually not from Mexico, but from countries much farther away, does that impact like detention facilities? Is that causing this rise in the number of people in detention right now? Are they also overwhelmed? That population currently is more transient. So you might see shorter stays in detention, depending on someone's ability to have a sponsor or family member to be released to. But where we have seen a trend is more internal reinforcements or community members who have been transferred to ICE detention here in Arizona. Let me ask you um, also about abuses in detention. I know there used to be a lot of reporting about poor treatment of immigrants who are being held in these detention facilities, deaths sometimes in these facilities. There's been lawsuits over that. Have these been remedied at all? Are these kind of still issues? We have challenged a number of uh, detention conditions and have a report that details some of the responses. There haven't been a lot of conclusions to the complaints that we have assisted people in filing, and we still see continued complaints of lockdowns. Our clients report to us that they might be held in their pod or their cell area for prolonged periods of time. We continue to hear complaints about inadequate food or specialized diets for people with certain medical concerns, as well as concerns about mental health and medical care. We've had reports of our clients being held in prolonged segregation or suicide watch in order to handle more complex mental health concerns. So we have not, the conditions that we are hearing from continue to persist uh, despite complaints. All right. We'll leave it there. That is Shannon Johnson, Managing Attorney for the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project, joining us to talk about the detention landscape here in Arizona. Shannon, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
The conflict between Israel and Hamas continues to impact other areas of the Middle East, as officials say a missile hit a ship off the coast of Yemen today. This follows strikes by the U.S. and U.K. against Houthi militants late last week. With me via Skype for our weekly look at some of the key global stories in the coming days is the BBC's Pete Ross in London. And Pete, what is the latest on this situation? Well, this morning or over overnight, the U.S. military said it shot down an anti-ship cruise missile fired from areas of Yemen controlled by the Houthi rebels. Said the projectile was launched on Sunday towards a U.S. Navy destroyer in the southern Red Sea, but no injuries or damage were reported. Uh, meanwhile, Qatar is halting the passengers, has just announced uh, this morning that it's halting the passage of tankers from its state energy company through the Red Sea. Qatar Energy has so far stopped at least sh- four ships of liquefied natural gas from using the route, which, as we now know, has been targeted by Houthi militants in Yemen. Now, this all follows, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, a series of military strikes that, as you say, were launched last week by the U.S., and the UK against Houthi targets across Yemen. Washington says the aim of those strikes was to reduce the military capability of the Houthis who've been attacking Red Sea cargo ships. Now, again, as I'm sure your listeners know, the Houthis are an Iranian-backed political and military group that controls most of Yemen. And they've been carrying out a growing number of attacks on what they claim to be Israeli-linked vessels in the Red Sea, which is one of the world's main trading routes. So that's disrupting global trade. The Houthis, who support Hamas, say they're reacting on behalf of Gaza Palestinians. And Houthi officials say that the sole goal of their attacks is to force Israel to halt its military campaign and to allow the free flow of aid into Gaza. So they've been attacking ships in the Red Sea since the beginning of the war in Gaza. That's disrupted global trade uh, and caused concerns about increased oil prices. And it is for that reason that Washington and London intervened last week with those attacks. We're now looking to see what the response is from the Houthis. And of course, the big question is, what happens next? Sure. All right, Pete, let's move now to Germany, which has been in the grips of major travel disruptions uh, following a nationwide train driver strike and road blockades by farmers who've been protesting energy prices. Uh, Those are rising, taxes rising as well. Are further protests planned for this week in Germany as well? Yes, is the short answer. But to those not following this story, I guess, Mark, it might come as a bit of a surprise to learn that Germany, as you said, Germany, which, of course, is, I think it's fair to say, renowned for its efficiency and seen by many as a sort of calm and reasonable place where things just work, like trains running on time, is, in fact, in the grip of major travel disruption, as you described, amid growing unrest and strike action. Now, last week, the country was in grip of major travel disruption. You had a three-day nationwide strike called by train drivers that ran from Wednesday to Friday evening. It brought rail uh, almost to an entire standstill across the country. But it added to travel chaos in Europe's biggest economy, which was already reeling from these ongoing farmer protests. Now, on Monday last week, farmers and their tractors began a blockade of many of Germany's major roads in Berlin. That blockade then spread uh, around the country. In fact, in near sub-zero or in sub-zero temperatures around the country last week in Germany, nearly all of the federal, 16 federal states, saw these huge protests. It was a week-long blockade. And um, it's, it's a difficult week, I guess, for the German government because it looks like these protests are set to continue. 
Pete, what's the thinking in terms of this current action potentially spreading to other sectors throughout the economy? Yes, that is the fear. But let's put it into a little bit of perspective first, Mark. Germany hasn't had a general strike. That's one that you know spreads across several sectors in over 100 years, not since 1906. And again, as I said, Germany's image abroad, it's a practical country where things run efficiently and without fuss. And that's not without good reason. However, there are signs that these recent strikes, as unusual as they are, are indicative of a wider unrest at things like the cost of living crisis. As that begins to bite and people really begin begin to feel the pinch, even in the largest economy in Europe, one important thing to say here as well is it's a crucial election year in Germany. They've got regional state elections coming up. They've got European Parliament elections coming. The current government is a coalition. It's already got its issues, what with the, what with the economy. It's faltering in ways that many hadn't predicted. So the short answer after all of that is these protests aren't going away. While they're unusual for Germany, do expect more of them. And where it leads, no one knows yet. A hundred years since a general strike, but you just never know. Right. Okay, Pete, finally now to Paris, where the Louvre is raising its basic entrance fee by 29 percent. And that's adding to concerns that visitors coming to Paris for the summer's Olympic Games will face increasing costs as well. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, well, this is one I think for, for maybe some of your listeners that might be planning a trip to France or, and specifically Paris this summer to just have a have a think about possibly rising costs as Paris uh, welcomes the Olympic Games there at, at the end of July. If you go to the Louvre uh, Gallery today, that's the, the gallery I, I guess is most famous for having the Mona Lisa, yeah. is, is the home of the Mona Lisa. If you went on Friday, you would have paid about 17 euros, which is roughly about $17, isn't it? Today, it's gone up to 22 euros. That's, as you say, almost a 30% hike. Now, you know, you might not be an art lover. You might be planning to go to Paris and think, well, I won't go to the Louvre. However, Parisians are worried that this is just the beginning of what could prove to be a very expensive summer if you're living or visiting in Paris. Um, The metro system says it is considering whether to double, that's right, double the price of a subway or a metro ride from about $2 up to $4. Um, And of course, uh, there's been articles in the French newspaper, Le Monde, Hoteliers, are expected to raise their rates, which is, is quite common in high season and low season with tourism, but they're expected to, to exponentially rack up those rates uh, in July through to September when the games arrive. So just a short one there. If you are considering going to Paris this summer, have a wee look at the prices because they might be more expensive than you, than you, uh, than you would expect. Sure. All right. That is the BBC's Pete Ross in London. Pete, good as always to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. In marriages, like in most relationships, there are stories we all tell about each other, whether it's the story of how we met or that time we survived a thunderstorm during a camping trip. They're the stories that come up when you're at a party or meeting your partner's colleagues. 
But what do those stories say about our relationships? Well, a new study has some answers. It's called Happily Ever After, What Stories Repeatedly Told to Others Reveal About Marriage and Identity. And for it, researchers interviewed 51 married participants about the stories they tell about themselves and why. Renee Bordeaux was one of the authors of the study, and I spoke with her more about it. And she told me the idea came from her own life and those of her fellow researchers. One day we were noticing that our spouses tended to tell the same stories to other people in different scenarios. <laughs> so if you were at a work event or something else, I'd be like, why do you always pick that story? And it started us thinking, and actually one of the other researchers I work with is a psychologist, and she's fascinated by memories and why we select certain memories. And I was fascinated by communication and how we tell the story. So we just thought this could be a really cool way to learn more about like, why are we telling these stories in front of our spouse who already knows the story? And why do we keep <laughs> picking the same ones? Yeah. Okay. So give us some examples. Like, what do we mean by the stories we tell about our marriage? Like, what kinds of stories came to mind for you? So sometimes it would be like really good stories. Like, we worked so hard. We persevered. Look at us. We conquered this parenting challenge. But sometimes we were finding either our spouses or other spouses we were talking to were sharing like these hard moments they were in or struggles that they were having. And so we're like, well, there has to be a reason why we're selecting those. And as we started recruiting, we're like, well, we want to talk to people who would ideally say, like, I think I've got my marriage together. Right. And so we started recruiting people and we had them take a, an assessment, which actually tells us, yeah, they on paper have it together and they're happily together. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then we just asked them, like, why do you choose these stories? And we asked them to tell us some of the stories and we didn't ask them to just tell their story. Mm -hmm. We wanted them to hear what their spouse was telling. Were they different often? I mean, are these sort of very different stories? They were always very different. Wow. And sometimes they liked the stories their partners told. And honestly, sometimes they were like, I don't know why they keep telling this story. It embarrasses me every mm. single time. So there were positive things revealed about marriages because of this and negative things revealed about marriages because of this. But even the negative things, it sounds like, were within this context of people who say they're pretty happy with their marriage, right? Absolutely. So we actually found, and it was fascinating because there were, of course, a good, long, awesome list of things that people said, this, this is what happy marriage looks like to us. Yeah. And there were things like, you know, my partner's meeting my emotional needs. We're actually enjoying spending time together. We have a shared vision for where we're going. But there were some negatives, which was actually honestly very surprising to us since they all tested uh, as people who said that they were in happy relationships, but mm -hmm. things about like negative impacts, other people, um, interestingly, like boundary mismanagement, like people trying to be too independent, people sacrificing their individual needs, always giving in to their spouse. Sure. There's this idea in the study of, of collective identity or like, like marriage identity, right? Which is really mm -hmm. interesting because storytelling is so much about identity. So within the marriage context, that's what the storytelling tends to be about, this marriage identity? It, it interestingly was about marriage identity a lot. Yes, like what we've done together. But we also saw quite a few instances in the data that talked about our personal identity. Like, what am I teaching other people? What do I want people to see that I'm capable of because I did these things? And I think sometimes that's why we saw the negative things come out, because they were frustrated or their partner was sharing something that 
maybe didn't paint them in a good light. And so there was always, it was, it was very interesting that in the realm of them talking about themselves and, and sharing about themselves in public, they were sharing both good and bad. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Um, And those are people who are still happy. So when we talk about conclusions to this, right, like if you're looking Mm -hmm. at where all of this lands, what did you learn about sort of happy, satisfied marriages? I actually have two things that people, when they look at this research, what they can do with it. Number one, and I think that the clearest takeaway Mm -hmm. is an action. What can I do? The largest instance in all of the data set in every couple, they talked about doing things together and talking about it and making the best of whatever it is. So one mm-hmm. takeaway is continually schedule time together, regular date nights, take time to hang out together, and then reflect on that. Talk about what it means to you to spend time with the other person. Now, the second takeaway I think is more powerful kind of as a mindset because social media has made us believe that you know, everybody lives in these highlight reels and everything's awesome. We interviewed a large group of people. We qualitatively asked them to tell stories and deeply got to understand more about them and their marriage. And the takeaway was that they were all happy, but they all talked about challenges. So the takeaway is that not every happy marriage looks the same and you shouldn't be aiming for this perfect highlight reel of what everybody else is doing because everybody's version of happy is a little bit different. Hmm. What did this study and sort of the the process of conducting this many interviews with this many married couples, right? Like, what did it reveal to you about communication and the importance of that in a marriage? Mm. So people could talk for hours. And we actually, we had to close um, (laughs) our, our recruitment because people just kept signing up and signing up and signing up. They wanted to to tell stories. And they're so proud of what they've crafted and created. And signing up for a study where you get to talk about your happy marriage was really cool. So number one, people love to share their successes because I think it shows and teaches to others how to do it. And maybe that's what's at the heart of it. But number two, I think it helps build your own identity. Like I'm proud of this. I did this. But the other thing that we see is communication is crucial in healthy relationships because it actually helps construct your meaning. Mm -hmm. Relive the stories, retell the stories, tell them to other people, honor where you've been and where you're going, celebrate the things that you've accomplished together. So telling life stories is actually one of the things that builds our marriage identity and it helps other people see what we've created as well. And we do that through story because on the outside, people don't know all of the things you've done You show them that through story. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. We'll leave it there. That is Renee Bordeaux, one of the authors of the article, Happily Ever After, What Stories Repeatedly Told to Others Reveal About Marriage and Identity. She's a former interpersonal communication scholar at Northwest University joining us. Renee, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. You are welcome. Thanks so much. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. With the new year comes a whole new crop of books that will be coming out. Earlier, I spoke with freelance book critic Mark Afatakis about what he's most excited about in 2024. But we started with whether there are any overarching trends he's noticing in books expected to come out or that have already come out this year. 
You know, right now, at least in the early part of this year, it feels very eclectic. Mm. Last year, there were scads and scads of celebrity memoirs and all the politicians got their political memoirs out. So in some ways, that field has been cleared a little bit. So I think one thing I'm noticing, at least in the first few months of 2024, is that um, there's a lot of variety of things. There's a lot of variety both in fiction and in nonfiction, popular fiction, literary fiction. It's, uh, uh, it's very global and very all over the place. Any themes about what books are about that are standing out? Um, I can point to a couple of books. One interesting kind of maybe a micro theme is one that deals with addiction. Um, one of my favorite books of the early part of this year is a book called – a novel called Martyr by uh, a poet named Kaveh Akbar. And uh, he has written about his own experience on that front. But this novel is about an Iranian-American young man who is in recovery and trying to come to terms with his addiction by writing about the concept of martyrhood. And is this – a matter of his narcissism or is this part of his recovery? It's uh, an interesting sort of kind of wrestling match that he has with himself. And uh, kind of paired with that is uh, Tommy Orange uh, who had a very popular novel come out a few years ago called There, There, which was about uh, the Native American community in Oakland. Um, the new book is called Wandering Stars and it's kind of a both a prequel and a sequel to that novel, though it works perfectly well um, on its own. And it deals with um, the history of of addiction and erasure of history in the Native American community. And it is a tremendously well-written, uh, sometimes abstracted, bouncing back and forth in time novel, but really, really well done. Especially if you're a fan of the first novel, I think you'll appreciate the second. That is really interesting. In terms of nonfiction, you mentioned last year we had a lot of the political books coming out. Of course, this year is an election year. Anything noteworthy so far in the nonfiction world? Well, there's a couple of books that I think are uh, of particular interest. Uh, there was some sad news earlier this week when the New Yorker dance critic uh, Joan Ecachella, she died. She'd been writing about dance um, and many other things for the, uh, the New Yorker for about 20 years or mm. so. Um, she uh, has a book that is scheduled to come out next month called The Bloodied Nightgown. And uh, what it is is actually her writing about literature. And it really displays just this amazing quicksilver mind of her. She was able to write about the Book of Job. She was able to write about Gilgamesh. She could write about Marilyn Robinson, Elmore Leonard, Richard Pryor, you name it. Uh, she had this remarkable intelligence that she brought to it. So that was really a tremendous loss. Uh, also, uh, Salman Rushdie has written a memoir that is coming out later in the spring called Knife, which, um, as you can probably tell, is uh, him writing about the attack that yeah. he suffered a couple of years ago in Chautauqua, New York. And uh, it's interesting that that's had a little bit of influence uh, on the upcoming trial of his assailant because that uh, the trial has been delayed so that the uh, defense can actually read the book. So it'll be oh, interesting wow. to see uh, you know, what Salman Rushdie has to say about that experience. Yeah. Now, I know that you are also paying attention to some Arizona-based authors, some local authors. We've mm -hmm. talked in the past about the number of books coming out from folks who write or, and live here. Mm -hmm. What are you looking forward to this year? Uh, there's a couple. Um, one in particular is a uh, the first nonfiction book by Lydia Millet, who is is a well-celebrated Tucson-based yeah, Tucson, author. Yeah. Yes. Um, and she has a nonfiction book called We Loved It All that is coming out in a couple of months. And the book it most puts me in mind of is one of my favorite books, which is uh, Andy Dillard's 
Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which is this beautiful nonfiction intersection of writing about the environment, writing about yourself, writing about religion, uh, and writing about creatures and animals. Uh, Lydia Millet works at the Center for Biological Diversity where she thinks a lot and writes a lot about climate change, but she's always done it in the fictional context. Um, this book is more of an effort to kind of merge memoir and some of that experience in a more straightforward, fact-based way. Um, the second book that uh, I'm interested in is a book called Cactus Country, which is by a writer named Zoe Bossier. And um, it might be a little bit oversimplistic, but it, one way to describe it might be as a, a trans this boy's life. Um, okay. Bossier grew up in an RV camp outside of Tucson um, as a girl, but also became part of this sort of hyper-masculine kind of survivalist culture um, in, the, in that area and so uh, kind of acquired a more gender-fluid identity. And so this book is an attempt to reckon with that sort of history to talk about both place and gender at the same time. So one other book I want to ask you about, and I know that that you're particularly excited about this, about crossword puzzles that's coming out. Yes. Um, so I am personally a crossword nerd. I do about four or five of them a day. Wow. But, um, it's uh, – and, and – one nice thing about doing crossword puzzles is it's one of those hobbies that the more you do it, the less time you spend on it because presumably <laughs> you get better at doing it. Um, but uh, one book in particular that I'm looking forward to is a book called The Riddles of the Sphinx, which is by Anna Schechtman. And she is a crossword constructor. She also worked as the assistant for Will Shorts, who is sort of the yeah. the, the great famous the editor yes, yeah. of, at the New York Times. Um, and one thing that's emerged in the last few years is that there's a, a kind of a, a roiling political discussion about crosswords in terms of – not just who gets to make them because it has been historically a very white um, and male environment, um, but also how do we clue things? You know, what sort of words are appropriate? Who counts? Who doesn't? When we talk about what is involved in creating a crossword and what sort of experiences does the person who's doing a crossword? What are they going to see? How is the culture reflected in these puzzles? Um, so that is a big conversation that is happening in this community. And one thing that this particular book does is kind of trying to frame the history of crosswords as you know, in, in a feminist context in terms of some of the early constructors who were women and also how women have been leading starting this conversation about um, not just treating the crossword as just, you know, a simple pastime, but a reflection about how we as a culture talk about ourselves. We have talked in the past about sort of the publishing world and how that is faring and, you know, ebooks and paper books. Anything in, in sort of in the world of publishing that you're expecting changes or trends coming up in 2024? I think AI is really a source of real anxiety these days. Just uh, today, there was an article in Wired magazine that was talking about how knockoffs of legitimately published books that are sort of summarized by AI and sold under the same title, these are flooding Amazon. Hmm. So uh, a lot of writers are feeling like, what is this going to do to me, to my ability to sell this book? What is what is happening to literature? And uh, you know, I've sort of speculated that I think you know AI is going to have a much deeper influence, um, and in ways that are probably going to surprise us. But I have bet at least one or two dollars that <laughs> at some point this year, a legitimate sto short story outlet is going to get pranked by an AI-generated short story that somebody is going to see, well, can I pass this off as something that's written by a human? And so it's scary. But from my perspective, I also think that there's a lot of promise here because I think you know any new innovation prompts actual human beings to innovate. So I think we're going to see more writers try to try new things that you know the AI bots can't replicate. 
Interesting. All right. That is freelance book critic Mark Athatakis. Mark, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Well, Mark, we all know there is a lot of great Mexican food in restaurants in Arizona of all kinds, but a new report from the Pew Research Center shows we are not alone in our love of tacos, enchiladas, guacamoles, tortillas, and more. Indeed, according to the report, about one in 10 restaurants in the U.S. serves Mexican food. In fact, 85 percent of all U.S. counties have at least one Mexican restaurant. That is a lot. But here in Arizona, we've actually got that national number beat. Mexican restaurants from food trucks to upscale dining account for 18 percent of all of the restaurants in our state. So I guess we just now need to go find a good breakfast burrito for for this morning, right? I'm with you. Let's Uh, go. All right. (laughs) Tacos. Tostadas. And that'll do it for this Hungry Monday edition of the show. As always, thank you for joining us. For Lauren Gilger, I'm Mark Brody. Have a great rest of your day. Hope to have you right back here tomorrow. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.